0: welcome. We made it. Another year. uh, Crazy. Uh, Another January. Um, I don't know about you, but the days are long, but the months are short. And so it's surprising to find ourselves here in one sense. If you have a Bible, go ahead and find 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're just going to do a kind of a one-off sermon today as we start off the new year. And uh, let me give you just a roadmap as you're finding 2 Thessalonians 2, also signing the roll sheet, that'd be super helpful as you come in. Um, Let me give you a roadmap for where we're headed, all right? So this uh, Sunday afternoon, we've got Regen, uh, so hopefully you'll be here 4.30 uh, for rehearsal. You'll sing in the evening service, that'll be great. So that's kicking back up. This Wednesday night, we'll have a night of prayer and worship to get prepared for Fuel Weekend, which is Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I hope you are excited. I know that I am. We've got a lot of work to do in the next week, so pray for us as we get all the kind of finishing touches on the plans for the weekend uh, knocked out this week. Then after we go through Fuel Weekend, we kick into the week of prayer, which is one of the most vital things our church does to begin the year every night, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, From six to seven, we meet in the sanctuary and we spend time praying. Praying for one another, praying for ourselves, praying for the world, praying for the lost, praying for our government, praying for the persecuted church, praying for all sorts of things. And it really just kind of sets the tone for where we want to be and where we want to go dependent on Jesus in 2024. After the week of prayer, we will kick off uh, all the normal rhythms of youth ministry. So Sunday We will start in the book of Acts, picking back up in Acts chapter 13. That next Wednesday morning, we'll kick back off into foundations for our high school students. And then that Wednesday night, we'll start equipping groups where for this spring semester, we'll be going through the book of Daniel. So if you want to go ahead and prepare yourself for that, uh, we'll be in Daniel. So if you want to read that and just get familiar with that text, there's a lot of wonderful things for us to discover there for the spring semester. So that's where we're headed. That's kind of the roadmap of where we're going this spring. That's not to mention... Uh, school and jobs for those older students who have them and family things and friends and social life and all extracurricular activities that have you going a hundred different directions and all these things kicking up and all these things starting back and all these things returning or maybe starting for the first time is why today I want to use this Sunday to remind us of truths that are sometimes easy to forget in the busyness of our lives. Uh, We love reading books in my house. Uh, Surprise, surprise. And so I love reading stories. Whitley loves reading stories to our son Abe. And one of the books that I really enjoy is a book by a woman named Ellie Holcomb. She's a a singer-songwriter, but she's also a children's author. And she has this book called Don't Forget to Remember. So you see that on the screen this morning. It's the title of my message as well. I just kind of just ripped from her. And the book is this Wonderful little children's story about remembering the truths that God tells us about his love for us, his care for us. The, the book ends with, don't forget to remember that God will never forget you. And so we are just reminded, and, and as, as parents who read these stories to, your, to our children, we, we need to be reminded, I need to be reminded of these very basic, very foundational, very powerful truths that will sustain us. In our lives, So in our passage this morning, I've identified quite a few of these truths that we ought to remember as we kick off the new year. So I want us to read the text, and we're going to actually read it three times this morning. It's just a couple of verses. Our first read is going to focus on the indicatives of the gospel. The indicatives of the gospel. The indicatives of the gospel are truths that we need to know. Things that are. All right? They're, they're ideas and truths and and, and wonderful news that you and I need to know. They tell us who we are because of the work of Christ. They are settled and sure. They indicate something. That's why they're called indicatives. Then we'll read the text again and we'll cover the imperatives of the gospel. So if indicatives are things that are, imperatives are things we ought to do, right? So we do the indicatives first because... We need to know who we are in Christ so that we might rightly know how to respond with a life of faithfulness. So we'll read our text again and look at some imperatives, things that we are called, actions that we are to do. And Finally, we'll look at the promises of the gospel. We'll read it a third time and look at promises that we see, these future realities that we can confidently hold on to to give us encouragement and context for life here and now. So you should be in 1 Thessalonians 2 we're going to start in verse 13 and read through 18. So join me there. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm... And hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let's pray together. Lord God, we love you and we are so grateful to start a new year and find you there and find your mercy there. Lord, we we are thankful that we get to gather together as the people of God to fellowship, to be encouraged, to be challenged, to sit under your word, to be changed and molded by the power of your spirit. And this morning, Lord, to remember the truths of the gospel that might sustain us all the way to glory. Lord, I pray that you would help me to teach with clarity and with power and with authority that comes from you And that for all of us in the room, myself included, we would listen and hear and be changed by your word and your spirit. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. So if you're taking notes this morning, number one, don't forget to remember the indicatives of the gospel. Don't forget to remember the indicatives of the gospel. You're going to hear that a lot because we're forgetful people. There are things that we forget all the time and And we forget that we've forgotten those things, right? Sometimes we forget things and we don't even realize it. I don't know that this illustration will land on everyone, but in one of the first Harry Potter movies, okay, we're good there? All right. In one of the first Harry Potter movies, uh, Neville Longbottom gets this ball. Are you with me on this? It's called the remember all. And it glows red when he's forgotten something. And so it's like this reminder for him that if he's forgotten something important, it'll start to glow and he'll start to think through. And so he's sitting there just staring at this ball and he goes, I know I've forgotten something. I just don't remember what I've forgotten. Like, I just don't know what this is trying to tell me. And often as Christians, the most basic fundamental things are easy for us to forget. So there are eight indicatives in this text that I want us to see. So I invite you to write these down. We could probably find more. Let's stick with eight. All right. We'll go through these rather quickly. Number one in verse 13 and verse 16, we are adopted by God. We're adopted by God. In verse 13 and verse 15, Paul calls us brothers or Adelphoi or brothers and sisters, siblings in God's family. And in verse 16, he says that God is not the father, but our father. If you are a Christian, you are in the family of God. You have God as your father, Jesus Christ as your elder brother, and this church body as a family of brothers and sisters, older women being our mothers, older men being our fathers. We have a family of faith. So no matter what your family life looks like, no matter what the relationships look like in your life, if you are in Christ, You've been given a family and you have a father who is perfect and righteous and good. Who, number two, loves you. We are beloved by God. Verse 13. Brothers, beloved by the Lord. God's love for you is unchanging because it is rooted in his love for his own Son, so, so get this: if you become a Christian, if you say, "I'm a follower of Jesus, I've been united to Jesus by faith," then all the things that are true of Christ before God are now true of you, because you are in Him. So the love that the Father has for the Son is the same love that the Father now has for you. Here's why this is wonderful news. It means that no matter where you are and what you've done, where you've been, how you're feeling. For God to love you any less would be for him to love his perfect son less. And that's never going to happen. So the good news of this indicative is that God's love for you is sure. It is unchanging. It is Perfect. No matter what you're doing, no matter where you are, you can know that God loves you, that he is always for your good, that your best interest is, in a very real sense, always on his mind. Number three, we are chosen by God. Look again at verse 13. Brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits. God chose you. He chose us to be his. While we were yet sinners, Paul says in Romans, Christ died for us before the foundation of the world. He chose that we would know him and that we would be his. So whenever you feel this year overlooked or unwanted or unseen, If you are in Christ, you can know that when you've been missed by the world and may be missed by those who are close to you, the God of heaven set his affection intentionally and directly on you. He chose you to be with him. In his divine mercy and grace, he wanted you to be his. Not because of something you can offer Him. Not because it would be awesome for you to be on God's team. Not because you were filling a gap that He really needed to have filled out for this conquest for His glory to reach the ends of creation. But because He just wants you. and He chose you. Number four, we are saved by God. We are saved by God. Continue reading verse 13, beloved by the Lord, because God shows you as the first fruits to be saved. Students, we were lost in our sin. We were blind in our sin. We were dead, Paul says in Ephesians, in our trespasses and sins. So then we were doomed and condemned to die, not just physical death, but eternal death torment and suffering and separation from God's mercy and love. And yet, out of his love and grace, God chose not just to have us as his own, but to save us from our sins. He redeems us, meaning he brings us back into right relationship with him. He has brought you from death To life, you were a foreigner and now you're a citizen. You were an orphan and now you're a son or a daughter. He brought us back into right relationship with him, not because we could do it on our own, not because we just needed a little help, but because of his great love for us, he saves. He chose you and loves you and adopts you and saves you. Number five, we are sanctified. By God. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. To be sanctified means to be set apart. There's a, a group here, but I'm taking one thing out and putting it over here. That's to sanctify it. It's to set it aside. It's to put it in a new category. And when you were chosen, when you were beloved, when his affection was brought to you through the spirit who adopts you into God's family and saves you from your sin, you were sanctified. You were set apart. You were brought out, he says in Colossians, out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. So you were set apart. That's the first kind of idea of sanctification, but you were also made holy. Remember, if we're united to Jesus by faith, all that's true of him is now true of us. So our position before God is no longer sinner, unclean, unloved, orphan, foreigner, slave to sin. Our status before God, our position before him now is holy, righteous, clean. Not because we've actually drummed up cleanliness and holiness in our lives, but because we've been given the holiness and righteousness of Jesus. And that happens through the work of the Spirit of God. The Spirit applies the work of Christ to our hearts, to our lives. And when that happens, we are sanctified in Him. And that sanctification continues. We'll get to that when we get to the imperatives. But know in this indicative of what's true of you today, is that your position before God is not any different than it was yesterday and not any different than it will be tomorrow because it's all rooted in what's completely done by Jesus. Once and for all, He has saved you from your sin and made you not crimson and scarlet anymore, but as white as snow. Number six, we receive faith from God. Still in verse 13 called, chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, if you've repented of your sins and turned to Him, it's because you've been given the gift of faith and therefore now can believe what is true. What's true about ourselves and our sin, what's true about God and his holiness and what's true about Christ and his offer of salvation. We can only believe the truth when we receive the gift of faith because we were living as children of darkness and now we are children of the light. We're now to walk in the light of the Lord. So we have been given this faith and the faith that the spirit of God gives to you and me as God's children, he will never take away. No one can separate us from this love. No one can close our eyes once again, now that they've been opened. Number seven, we are called by God. Called by God. Look at verse 14. To this, he called you through our gospel. God called to us by his Holy Spirit and brought us to himself. Like the shepherd in Jesus's parable who runs after the one lost sheep, he went after you and found you and me. This happens through the word and the spirit. So when we became Christians, we heard the gospel and believed it. But what happened there is Normally, how this works is we hear from a friend or a parent or a pastor or a family member, we hear the gospel according to the scriptures. And that external call, that external preaching of the word, the preaching of the gospel, that external call is used and the spirit then calls into our hearts and effectively draws us to God. If you are in Christ, it is because he chose you and because he has called you. And by his grace and by his power, you heard the call and responded with the faith that he gave you as a gift. Number eight, finally, last indicative, we are comforted by God. Look at verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us And gave us eternal comfort. So, Paul says here in 2 Thessalonians that the Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father has given us eternal comfort already. Like we already have eternal comfort. That's something we've already received. But how does he do it? How does God, how does the Father and the Son bring comfort to his people? This comfort that We are at peace with God because we can know that we are His, that we are right with Him, that we don't have to fear Him anymore for destruction or judgment. He does this through His very Spirit. The Spirit of God is called by Jesus in the Gospel of John, the paraclete or the advocate or the comforter. And Jesus tells his disciples and he tells you and me, when I leave, I'm going to send another comforter to you who will be in you. So the father and the son send this spirit to dwell within you so that you might constantly, moment by moment, live in the comfort of the peace that God provides. You can live that way. All the time. You have access to that kind of comfort, that kind of encouragement. So, these eight indicatives of where we have to start before we talk about how we respond, what we ought to do this year in 2024, what you need to know are these truths. What you need to rest your life on is that God has made a sinner a saint, He's made an orphan a son. He's brought you out of sin and into salvation. And that leads us to read this text again and then focus on the imperatives. So let's read it again. Verse 13. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God shows you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Number two, don't forget to remember the imperatives of the gospel. The indicatives of the gospel tell us that it is okay to not be okay. The indicatives of the gospel tell us you can come to Jesus just as you are. But the imperatives of the gospel tell us it is not okay to stay there. It's not okay to stay in that that way of living. It's not okay to stay just entrenched in your sin, entrenched in your brokenness. We have to move. We've been called to act. We've been given imperatives. There are five in this passage. Number one, we must live lives of gratitude. Listen to how Paul starts this passage. We ought always to give thanks to God for you. So it just is safe to assume. If Paul says we should be always thanking God for you, brothers in Thessalonica then surely there are other things for which Paul can be thankful to God. And surely it is true of us that if Paul is thankful to God for how he's been at work in the lives of the Thessalonians, then surely we have plenty to be thankful for of how he is at work in our own lives or in the lives of those around us. So we must not take for granted that God is in fact at work in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Thanksgiving should be often flowing from our hearts And being ungrateful is a sign that we have misunderstood grace. An ungrateful heart is a heart that does not understand grace. Number two, we must stand firm. Verse 15, therefore, brothers, stand firm. What does this mean? It means to remain solid, to, to step your feet, to stand your ground, to, to be solid and rigid and protected and not easily swayed. But what are we standing firm against? Let me give you three things that I think in 2024 you and I should stand firm against. First, persecution. It costs you something to be a faithful Christian in Auburn Opelika, it costs you something to be a faithful Christian in many of your schools. It costs you something to be a faithful Christian on your sports teams. Don't compromise for fear of what the world might say or do. Stand firm. Second, stand firm against temptation. Do not follow your heart and be led by your sinful desires. Stand firm against the schemes of the devil that would want to lead you astray, just like he did our first parents, Adam and Eve, by enticing their desires towards that which is unfaithful to God. Stand firm against temptation. And third, stand firm against false teaching. We are surrounded and inundated by a glut of content And information, those of you who have access to social media, you have access to a massive amount of information by people who claim to be followers of Jesus who want to influence you towards whatever they are selling and peddling and saying. Some of it is very good and very solid and trustworthy. A lot of it is not. And so you and I have to stand firm against false teaching and discern that when we take in doctrine, when we take in teaching, we have to say, is it sound? Is it according to scripture? Or does it just make me feel good? Or does it make me feel like, oh, I should get what I want because this person's saying it's according to the Bible? Well, maybe, maybe not. So stand firm. Number three, We must hold to the traditions. The traditions, that's what Paul says. Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. This is hand in hand with standing firm against false teaching, right? Holding fast to the traditions. When Paul is writing this, the very clear application is to hold fast to the scriptures. Like Paul is writing The Bible right now. He's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. And he's saying, those things that I've written to you before, hold fast to those things. Those things we taught you before was according to the scriptures. So let the Bible be the anchor that you hold on to in the midst of the storm of your life. Hold fast on to the traditions, hold on to the word of God, hold on to this supreme authority that you've been given. So that must mean that you this year have been charged by God. This is an imperative of the gospel to know his word. You have to know his word. It doesn't doesn't mean that you just have to be around it, right? Like you're not just going to learn. You will learn about God's word through some osmosis right? If you surround yourself with people who are reading the Bible, if you find yourself in the, the, this building regularly throughout the week, you're going to learn things about God's Word. You're going to hear people studying it and preaching it and teaching it. But there is no substitute for you getting with the Scriptures and reading and looking and looking and looking and looking and learning. We need to know His Word. In addition to that, It doesn't just mean the scripture, although that's supreme and the ultimate authority of our lives. But it also means we ought to know the faith and sound doctrine that's been delivered through the ages, down through the history of our church. Those traditions and teachings are deposited for you and me through the teachings of our church, through discipleship, through our confession of faith, through good books and good sermons and more. We ought to be hungry for The truth of his word. Number four. We must put our hope in God. Verse 16. May the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. We must put our hope in God. Our hope, as we learned a couple weeks ago in Advent, is this eager expectation of the future. It's Confidence in what's to come. It's a sort of being held in suspense, but we know it's coming. It's not flimsy. It's not a shot in the dark. It's not this kind of ambiguous, ethereal hope that maybe our world and our culture might talk about. It's weighty. It's tightly connected to faith. And ultimately, God is the only one who can hold the weight of your hopes. Your school and your academic achievement cannot hold the weight of your hope. Sports and your athletic prowess cannot hold the weight of your hope. Popularity and social status cannot hold the weight of your hope. Money and safety and security and comfort and pleasure cannot hold the weight of your hope. A husband or a wife cannot hold the weight of your hope. Children cannot hold the weight of your hope. None of these things were meant to do that. So what if in 2024 you committed to God, to yourself, to those close around you? I want my hope to be in not in the things of this world, even good things, even gifts from him. We don't put our hope in the gifts. We put our hope in the giver. Number five, we must do and say good. Verse 17, may God comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Healthy things produce fruit. And our lives are no different. Good works and good words are what Paul is expecting from his brothers and sisters. And that's us. So the gospel demands that our speech, our attitudes, and our actions would be glorifying to him. That your lives should not just be positionally sanctified and holy before God, but practically in the world, holy and sanctified and glorifying to God. Now that we know who we are in Jesus and what he's done and what he's called us to do, let's read our text one more time very quickly and remember that he has also given us promises. We are always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then brothers, stand firm And hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Don't forget to remember, number three, the promises of the gospel. The promises of the gospel. Just three promises very quickly for us to cling to As we move into this new year, first, God will comfort your heart. We've already mentioned that he's given us eternal comfort. But Paul repeats it here in verses 16 and 17. The same God who has already given us eternal comfort, verse 17, will comfort your hearts. He's going to keep doing it. So if you will depend on him and abide in Him and lean into His presence and His power and His love, then God our Father and His Son Jesus Christ through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit will bring comfort to your heart. That doesn't mean He's going to take away all your pain. It doesn't mean He's going to make your life easy. But it does mean that you will have the comfort of His presence whenever you want to be aware of it. Second, God will establish our good works. So not only have we been promised that God will comfort our hearts, but he will establish our hearts for every good work and word. Although we've been charged to say and to do good by the imperatives of the gospel, we don't pursue these things in our own power and in our own strength. No, we cling to the promise that God is the one at work in us. He provides us all that we need for life and godliness. So in the hard times and in the easy times, we run to Jesus for his strength. We remember the promise that he will establish our hearts for every good work and word, nothing too big, nothing too small. We depend on him for all the good that we might do. And finally, God will bring you all the way to glory. Look again at verse 14. To this, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation may have begun in God's loving choice in eternity past, and it's being worked out day by day in your continual growth in godliness, but it will surely end in glory where there is no sin, where there is no pain, where there is no sorrow, where there is no doubt, where there is no death, you will be present with Jesus face to face. We will obtain, Paul says, his glory. Obtain the glory of Jesus. He calls us through the gospel so that you may obtain the glory. So, so, so here's the promise. If he has called you, he will bring you to glory. I mean, there's no no other way. If he has called you, he will bring you all the way to glory. So when you're feeling awesome and faithful and that you're nailing this Christian faith thing, or when you're feeling awful and lonely and despairing and despondent, remember that this promise is for you. There, there, and everywhere in between. If God has called me to himself, then he will not leave me until I reach the glory of Jesus Christ. Until I am obtaining the glory of Jesus. He's with me. He's for me.